The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm delighted to welcome my guest, Ms. Laura Titzer. She is a community food organizer and facilitator who strives to create spaces for people to think about their interactions within the community. She grew up in Indiana, where she co-founded the Indianapolis Food, Farm, and Family Coalition, and she has worked with local and government agencies as well as activist organizations promoting food growers and producers in the United States. Ms. Titzer holds a Master's in Environment and Community from Antioch University in Seattle, and she works in the hunger relief system. She writes about food justice and social change. She lives in Seattle at the moment. However, she also does work nationally. Her book that we are going to be talking about today is titled No Table Too Small, Engaging in the Art and Attitude of Social Change as it Revolves Around the Food System. Welcome, Laura. It's great to have you. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, I want to start out with a little bit of your backstory and ask you how it was that you moved from Indiana to Seattle and how it was that you became introduced and interested in improving the food system. Yeah, it's actually a really fun story to me when I think about it because it all started with a Mennonite food justice book club in Indianapolis that I found in the local newspaper. And I, at that time, wasn't doing anything in the food system and started attending this book club and reading these books and meeting wonderful people doing their own kind of personal activism in their daily lives. And it very quickly snowballed from there of wanting to do more than read the books I was reading And so I started volunteering and networking and getting involved with many different organizations, whether they were environmental or food-based, and just putting myself out there, learning more about what was going on in the community. And that eventually turned into having some conversations with folks that unraveled into community conversations with many different organizations where we began the Indianapolis Food Farm and Family Coalition, which was my first endeavor into community organizing and dealing with multiple kinds of personalities and people wanting to see varying things happen in their community and kind of holding that space for everyone. And that was where I learned that that's what I really wanted to be doing and really what my passion was. And around that time, after that organization got started, I was swept away to actually Madison, Wisconsin for about a year and a half where I ended up working for the Department of Agriculture for Wisconsin and an economic development agency all in promoting local food in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed that as well. And then some political forces started playing out there with the when Governor Walker got in office and it didn't really seem like my job was going to be very viable after a little while. And I was really learning through 
the work that I was doing even in trying to promote local growers and the work that I had done in Indianapolis that there were still a lot of skill sets that I really needed to get better at and I was recognizing the things that I didn't know. Mm-hmm. And so I decided to go back to school and ended up at Antioch University in Seattle. So I moved out to Seattle and or while I was going to school and kind of looking for a job and being unsuccessful at finding a job, I ended up getting involved in a volunteer-run activist organization called Community Alliance for Global Justice, which was really amazing. Worked with them to develop an education series that's now called their summer school that's around food justice and food sovereignty. And from there, working a you know, couple different um, jobs within the hunger relief system and then also starting to do more facilitation for nonprofits and the facilitation I have done in the past has focused on bringing varying organizations and people together in a room to create a shared vision, much like what the Indianapolis Food Farm and Family Coalition was. Now, did you grow up in a Mennonite community? No. Indiana does have a number of Mennonite communities, and this was, no, but I wasn't, but the group was open to anyone who wanted to attend. Well, I imagine that the communication style and group dynamics is different, say, in a Mennonite community as it would be, say, in another religious community. Is that a fair assumption? I think so. I mean, it was definitely, I was actually raised Catholic, and I would say the the group with the Mennonite was my also kind of my first introduction to meeting people that were religious and also had a very strong activist Mm -hmm. to their life and what they wanted to be doing. It's interesting that in the book, as well as in our conversation, you're using the word activist. And I have been in settings where I've had, say, a speaker call out or use the word activist, and it has a negative connotation. So I wonder if you could define for our listeners, what does activist mean to you? Yeah, to me, an activist is someone who's passionate about something, that cares enough about some issue or topic that it drives them to action. And that could be something that's personal, kind of going into that the personal is political frame, or more external action of whatever that might be, a rally, let's say, or something like that or getting signatures for something. But I think it can take many different forms. But to me, it's just, it's someone that is very passionate about wanting to see something change. Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting because one of the things that I really like about your book is that it brings us to a different way of thinking through six capabilities that you call them for change agents. So whether we're using the word activist or change agent, I think that perhaps those two words or those two terms might be seen differently by different audiences. And because one of your capabilities that you identify in the book is communication, and as a as someone who's worked in public health education, I know how important language is, that I wanted to bring up that term because I thought, how do we define ourselves in doing this work? You know, do we call ourselves activists and then maybe have some people close a door to what we have to say because there's an assumption made about the activists perhaps being overly radical? 
Do we call ourselves change agents? How do we define ourselves when we are working to improve the food system? Yeah, I thought about those words a lot when I was writing the book and went from just using one to just using another to interchanging them. And I landed on interchanging them because I think it's what you were just hitting on is that it depends on the work that you're doing and Mm -hmm. what word makes sense for you and what lands for you. Some people, activist lands for them. It, It really means something to them and they want that's the word that they would prefer using. And then for other people, that word may definitely feel too strong, yet they are trying to create change. And mm-hmm. change agent does come more from the organizational development field, and it is someone who's seeking to create change. But it's just a little more, it's a it's softer than mm-hmm. the word activist. I agree. I agree. All right. I want to talk about how you became involved in food justice. And if you would, for our listeners, define what food justice means to you. So for me, food justice is the right for everyone to have culturally appropriate, affordable, accessible food, land to farm on, to grow food on um, in their communities. And what are the biggest barriers that you see towards the realization of food justice for all? Yeah. I think in certain sectors, it's institutional racism. Mm. Um, I think in our, with our farm workers or food service workers, your processing and um, things like that, there's a lot of as I'll just say, I guess not great things happening. And then when it comes to land and accessing land, there's a lot more barriers that people of color experience than white people. And so I think that's a big, big barrier that is becoming a growing conversation in the in the food movement is to really be looking at that. Another piece that has been a growing topic that you probably have seen as well in the food justice movement is looking at that it is a very white movement and how, what does that mean? And really thinking about that in almost like a philosophical way of what, what does that really mean that it isn't all white, uh, not all white, but a, um, it, see, it looks externally as if it's an, uh, a white-led movement when it's not. There's lots of great things happening in Detroit and things like that. So I think those are some barriers that first come to my mind. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting that you bring that up because I almost think that there is a a conscious effort to call the work that we do to improve our food system as an elitist movement. It's a way to separate the us versus the them and to further drive a wedge when, as you say, I mean, there are so many food movements going on in our country, and certainly internationally, where people who don't look like me and you are actually making tremendous inroads. And I think about the Coalition of Immokalee Workers, for example, Mm -hmm. down in Florida. I think about the Native American communities in the Pacific Northwest. I think about different groups who are indeed making a difference and feeling empowered through their work in the food movement and making substantial change. 
Right. Absolutely. And, and yet it's, yeah, it, there's so many magazines that you can pick up or stories where it can feel that you can feel the opposite. Right. Yeah. And I think we have to be so cognizant of that. And really what your book is about to me, No Table Too Small, Engaging the Art and Attitude of Social Change, is to recognize just how polarized we are as a society. I haven't spent a lot of time internationally, so I'm only speaking through my own lens. But it seems like in our Western culture, we have such an us versus them kind of culture, whether we're talking about sports or whether we're talking about religion, war, it's always us versus them rather than what can we do cooperatively and collectively, even with people who think at the total opposite end of the spectrum as we might to have everyone at the table. And that's what really your book says to me is that there is no table too small. We must bring diversity even our most staunch opponents, to the table if we're going to make inroads to improve food justice. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have such a competitive culture, and yeah. it runs so deep and so so widespread throughout everything. It's in how we even potentially measure the success of our nonprofit or the success of our business. It's all based on a, um, on, a on a kind of competitive scale. And, and it, that kind of place hits people so fast against each other, even when they're actually rooting for the same issue. All of a sudden, they're, in, they're facing their own inroads, you know, and I see that a lot in the food system, which is one of the things that really spawned this book from its original, when I originally started thinking about writing it, was this competitive piece. Mm-hmm. Let me take one moment, remind our listeners, if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, and we are joined by Laura Titzer. She is the author of No Table Too Small, Engaging the Art and Attitude of Social Change. Well, that was really where my question about your Mennonite experience came from, because I wondered where you came to have this broad, cooperative concept that you are bringing forward in your work, because we are so entrenched in a competitive mindset. Where do you think that cooperation vein sprung forth? Oh, that's a really good question. And I, I will say I've thought about it. You know, I think it was sparked definitely with the Mennonite group. It was predominantly women, and we would even cook together in the kitchen that they had in their church and make cheese uh, a couple times together, uh, which was fun. And I think where I really became a firm believer in it, even though it's completely complex and messy, is the experience of starting that coalition in Indianapolis. I really had kind of no idea what I was doing at that time. And I just knew that I needed to bring all these different people in the same space. And we all just needed to talk and figure something out together in one room. And I felt in that moment of like, this is what it's supposed to be like. I mean, mm. we may not be getting along 24-7, but this, it just felt that that's where, that's where it was supposed to be. And um, it really ignited me from that point on. Yeah. And isn't it beautiful to train ourselves to listen deeply to each other 
what I've experienced at my professional conferences, anytime there's a, a pro and con kind of issue, is that these discussions are set up as debates where there is considered, you know, at the end of the day, at the end of the debate, there's going to be a winner and a loser. And what you're describing in your book is that we can all be winners. We can all make incremental steps for change if we will only listen to each other and find common ground. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I know I, I talk about it in the book that the, there's the story of a conference I went to with the two keynotes that spoke together seemed completely, like I said, diametrically opposed in this in this whole system. One was actually the co-founder of the Tea Party movement and and then a finance reform lawyer. And their politics couldn't be more different. And yet they were like best friends. And yeah and work together and they were honest of they see how odd it is but they were like they realize they have very common values yeah they want to see the same things for their kids or for themselves you know they want to see the same kinds of things for their communities and so they really just latch on to those pieces knowing that they might disagree on other things it's hard to come together though i know that this program is designed to really focus on food, health, and agriculture, so we must stay there. But as you're talking, I'm thinking about all of the ways, the many more ways outside of even the food culture where we're polarized, and I'm trying to imagine, using our imagination to find a way to envision a community where we can agree to disagree. You talk about in your book about how important it is to separate the personal from the issue, right? So we might have two opposing views, but I'm not going to hold that against you as a person. I'm going to hope to learn more about how you came to your thoughts. Mm -hmm. I mean, I get so excited, honestly, when I meet people that seem like they're going to be super different from me or they start talking about something that I realize just seems so different from the way my mind thinks. And I love it. I just start getting really curious and asking them questions to learn more. I mean, you know, obviously not in like a, why do you think that way right. kind of thing, but an honest place of, I want to learn more about that. And I've noticed that when I approach it in that kind of fun way to it, it makes the other person want to ask me more questions and learn about me. And instead of getting stuck on anything. Right. Well, you describe in the book that you attended a conference, I believe, on the art of powerful questions. And I have been really intrigued with that as well. What are the best questions to ask? What are the best ways to ask those questions? Can you tell me a little bit about that conference and how you've applied those powerful questions to the food system work that you do? Yeah. So it was a, it was a workshop, just a Oh, I think maybe just a three-hour workshop or something on powerful questions. And I took a lot of, that was a big piece of my graduate school as well, of looking at how you're asking questions and the types of questions you're asking. And so it's something that's been really on my mind for many years now of crafting that question. And I think the biggest thing is for me that I realized is how it can affect the person's response on how you ask it. And so it's about asking those open-ended questions that aren't insinuating anything, 
the questions I've had the most response to and the most dreaming with when I'm with groups and, and facilitating groups is when it's actually their questions that are asking folks to dream mm. um, and to think big, you know, put all of your barriers aside and let's just Let's just really vision what we want to see. What what could this be? And and then kind of getting down to the nitty gritty. But those those powerful questions really come from trying to unstick yourself from your from your daily life a little bit. Mm-hmm. Can you give me other examples? Yeah, I think. Well, an example maybe of a question is if there's what is. What is one thing? I, actually, there's a series of questions that I love. Um, and so it's asking, what is one thing that we could do that would completely destroy the project that we're working on? Oh, wow. What could we do to ruin it? And which, you know, can sound really negative, but it goes in a positive direction. And then you look at, what am I doing in my daily life that looks like that? Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. And then the next question is, like, what can I do? How can I change these actions that I'm currently doing that actually look very similar to me ruining what I'm trying to do? Mm, that is powerful. Yeah. Well, in your book, you have outlined six strategies for change agents. And we won't have time to go through them all. You call them six capabilities. I'm sorry, I called them strategies. But I wonder if you would like to address those at all. You know, I think that you, I'll just review them and then you can, how about if you pick the one that you want to maybe bring forth? Um, so you've got holding space, communication, reflection and action, co-creation, leadership, and systems thinking. Maybe explain how you came up with those six strategies or capabilities, and then our listeners will just have to go out and get your book to yeah. dive into those more deeply. Yeah. You know, I think in total, it probably took me about three years of editing to finally come to those six. Yeah. With the book. And I didn't start with those six. They were all in there. And it was a process of really whittling down what what is the most important? What am I really what am I really trying to say is is this that are these important elements of of creating change? You know, what am if I'm really trying to boil down what I'm what I'm saying, what are those six things? Not that I had a specific number before that. It happened to be six. And it was it was really it was kind of an arduous process, I won't lie, of really taking everything I had written and then kind of slicing and dicing it. And I at one point in my apartment I really had a wall of post its of like and paper and everything that I was writing and just rearranging things on a wall and grouping them and and finally, and also doing a lot of kind of personal reflection and meditation. And, you know, I, I wish I had something a little more streamlined for how I came up with those six, but it really was a long process of really thinking about what, what I'm trying to tell people, what I really want to get out. 
I understand. I, I think you've come up with a tremendous recipe for moving forward to changes that we must take part in immediately. Forgive my sense of urgency, but I do feel that way when I think about agriculture and food, of course, and its impact on public health. And then we have climate change and we have all of these other components of the food industry and our food system that are making tremendous impacts on, say, quality of water, antibiotic resistance. You know, that, that, those are the lenses that I look at the food system through. And I realize that, wow, we do need a recipe to get us out of the predicament that we find ourselves. I wonder, let me pick on the, the sixth one, this, the systems thinking, because I think mm -hmm. it is one of the most important ways to start maybe in, even in kindergarten, helping us think about our place in life. Tell me about how would you define a food system? Oh, wow. It's so hard because it encompasses everything. Yeah. Uh, it touches everything, uh, which is just impressive and, um, and kind of mind-boggling when you, when you really start digging in that there's the, there's the one kind of food system that I think is the piece that readily comes to our minds of from field to plate, we'll say, right? Right. So, the, the growing, the farm workers and the farmers, and then processing and transportation and distribution, all those pieces to finally getting on your plate and all of those steps in between. But then it's all of the other pieces that an everyday person doesn't even realize that food touches. It's the food being used as weapons in war. It's food being, you know, internationally. It's, you know, food being that it actually has our transportation system as a larger system of our our railroad system and ships. And, you know, there's just, it's so, it, it touches just so many things. And, I, um, you know, there's, I in the book, there's a um, kind of a rudimentary diagram of just all these, like a mind map yeah, of I love all that. these different things. Yeah, and, I mean, that's not even everything. Right. Because there's also the insects, like the the bees that pollinate our, our food. And there's just, there's so many pieces. It's, I think I, I really, um, as it's probably sounding, struggle to come up with a consolidated definition of the food system. Well, the reason why I asked you that particular question is because I really enjoyed the way you showed a mind map. And for people who just want to try this at home, mm -hmm. you bring up a term and then you you bring forth all of the topics or issues that might interrelate and as you beautifully say in your book and other writings food touches everything and uh, unfortunately we are out of time but i want to leave our listeners with your beautiful understanding that food does touch everything I want to also reinforce how important I think your book is right now, just in rethinking how we communicate. No Table Too Small, Engaging in the Art and Attitude of Social Change, Laura Titzer, our guest and author. 
And in closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at Kaopian Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And I especially want to thank my guest, Laura Titzer, who is working at the cutting edge of food system change. I'll provide a website online, but it's www.notabletosmall.com. Laura, thank you so much for being my guest. Absolutely. Thank you. 